You're listening to The Good Fight, where campus meets Christ. Greetings, and welcome to another week and another episode of uh, Discussion on a Great Children's Novel. I am Timothy, as always, here and excited, and uh, still not alone, wonderfully joined by others. Have you ever been alone? Actually, I was alone most of the day in my in my dorm room doing my classes. Must be sad. It is. I meant like on the podcast. Oh, I've never. <laughs> I've never. But you know, sometimes people expect it, maybe. You went so deep there. <laughs> I was alone today. I'm Grace Alita. I'm Tina Liu. I'm Gabrielle Leppard. Gabrielle. Do we have a guest today? I've never met you on the podcast before. Why are you here? Uh, I forgather I'm here to talk about what we had to read. I'm excited for that. Wow. Nice. Speaking of what we had to read, Tina, what did we have to read? So this week we had to read chapter six and seven. Chapter six is the beginning of Uncle Andrew's Troubles. So we have Diggory and Polly, they're trying to run away from the witch, but they realize that they did not successively run away from the witch. In fact, they brought the witch onto Earth, and the witch sees Uncle Andrew and says, My minion, please, find me a... She did not say please. Find me a chariot this instant or else you'll be you'll die. So Uncle Andrew has to do the witch's bidding, and Polly goes back home, and Diggory chills at home, and he's wondering, oh, what on earth should I do? How do I get rid of this witch? I can't let the witch run around on Earth. And a few moments later... The witch returns to the house and brings a ton of people alongside her. Everyone's like, who is this lady? She must be drunk. She must be crazy. Look, she gave me a black eye. No one likes the witch and a fight commences and Diggory is trying to reach the witch so he can bring the witch back to the magic wood. Very good. Insert applause here. All right, that was sufficient time. Uh... So let's start off chapter six. Um, I, first of all, I must say I was very interested by this uh, line. Um, this proved, by the way, another thing about the rings, which Uncle Andrew hadn't told Diggory because he didn't know it himself. Um, just this picture of Uncle Andrew, uh, which we talked about, I think, the first week, like pushing these two children into something that he really wasn't willing to do himself. And... Here we also see he really has no idea what is going on, uh, which I thought was interesting. But what I was more interested in was how the queen slash the witch reacts and responds to this new environment, the woods, and she's kind of weakened. And I wondered what people's thoughts are on her weakness and uh, a few of the things that, that Lewis points out here. She has no power there. Or there's something that's keeping her from having power there. Ooh. Although it's not as though she has no power. Because it does say that like she started to regain her strength. But there is something that weakens her. That makes them not afraid. That was cool. But it seems kind of... I mean, when the children first get there, they seem kind of very calm. So when you contrast how the children felt versus her, it's like she feels as if she's been weakened, whereas the kids regain this sort of curiosity or calmness in the woods. 
Which I think is interesting because when the kids were first in the woods, they didn't like they felt like they'd always been there. But the queen doesn't seem to exhibit that in the same way. Like she doesn't seem like she's definitely weakened in the same way that we kind of saw the kids get disoriented. Yeah, I think um, when we first saw the kids get there, they felt really drowsy. They felt like if they fell asleep, they would be asleep forever. So I think it's the same effect that the witch experiences. She must feel some sort of drowsiness, but she's probably, she has more resolution or has a clear goal and knows more about the world. So she's able to fight it better and regain control quicker. See, at first, I kind of I kind of agreed with this thought that like she's just kind of drowsy, but then she'll come back to it. You know, like she, we have this picture of her regaining strength. But then there is this line uh, a few pages later that um, C.S. Lewis writes, I think, and Diggory thinks too, that her mind was of a sort which cannot remember that quiet place at all. And how after, however often you took her there and however long you left her there, she, she would still know nothing about it. So there d- does seem to be this idea that there is something different about the way the witch is responding to the wood, the quiet wood with all the ponds. And it is characteristically different from how the children experience it because they kind of know this experience of being in the woods and they remember it. But the witch, it's completely gone for her and never could be kind of present in her memory. Do you buy it? Do you disagree? Can you specify again what's not in her memory? The memory of being in the the wood, right? So she has no recollection of the wood. So maybe it's a separate question, and I'm assuming it's because she's experienced she experiences it differently. But maybe that's a separate question: is why is it that she cannot remember anything about the wood? It seems as if she kind of forgets quite a few things aren't there moments where she kind of doesn't seem to i mean acknowledge the children as well yeah but i feel like that's different and here's why here's why because we get this specific idea that she forgets about the children because she can't make use of them right and this is kind of explaining something we discussed or like manipulate them right yeah uh, the line is, uh, I expect most witches are like that. They're not interested in things or people unless they can use them. They are terribly practical. Um, so uh, you have this sense. So I don't know, maybe that's the same thing that's happening with the woods. Like she can't control the woods and so she can never remember it. I think there might also be the idea of it being like belonging to a force greater than her own, like her not having control over it i think that it's almost similar to how when like when she is is on earth i guess you could say um and she tries to like speak or is trying to speak a a, i don't know if it's a curse um it was a chant i think or something like that that would um in like in charn turn things to dust or churn, or charn, Karn. or charn, or charn, as um, Tina brought up, yeah. Any of those places, well, they're all one, but any of those pronunciations of that place, um, like she didn't, that power wasn't hers anymore, and I don't know if it's exactly along those lines, 
but it seemed to be reminiscent of that, of the power just not, not belonging to her anymore. Yeah, that's kind of jumping forward to chapter seven, but I, I feel like all of this really just ties into one discussion. But I, again, I feel like that is something different too, because we see her visible presence, right? Her skin color, her appearance, her height is more terrible in London than it was mm -hmm. even in Karn. And so you have this sense that she is actually more powerful here in this young world than she was previously. And yet her power doesn't shine through like that. So are you saying that that's just based on the world then? Like Maybe. different worlds having different... That's, that's what I'm here to talk about. Because I feel like I could see that like different worlds just baseline having different structures, I guess you could say. Yeah, so what you could that. do in one, you like can't do it in another. I think the w different worlds, the different pawns operate on different fundamental rules and as a living being you have to abide to those so on earth there is no um mag there's it's not the same magic as in charn karn um so the witch's powers transform correspondingly but i'm not sure how that explains why she doesn't remember the woods yeah that's very strange i actually hadn't remembered that which maybe that's speaking to that's really ironic i know it is really ironic um that I wouldn't remember her not remembering. Well, I guess the one thing, if we're trying to see what distinguishes the woods from these other ponds is how Tina kind of said that these other ponds have certain rules by which they operate. The woods seem to be like a perfect place where it almost seems like people are equalized, kind of. Are they really equalized in that sense though because i feel like the witch is brought below where the children are right and so i mean we could accept the explanation that it's because they've been there before they've kind of already adjusted or we can seek another explanation which i i think have proclivities towards which is that she actually is almost powerless in a sense in the the wood between the worlds I think I would agree because, I mean, looking at it from a literary perspective, I feel like C.S. Lewis would have been clear. Like he would have given her the same symptoms that the kids did if that's what he desired. But it's clear that what she's experiencing is greater than what they experience and also much different. Um, that like there seems like there's an interesting parallel or connection between the children not remembering where they were from when they were in the woods and the witch not remembering she was in the woods when she's out of it. They seem distinctly different, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Almost, almost diametrically opposed, right? That for them, the experience in the woods is perpetual. It's continuous. It's everlasting. But for her, it's non-existent. There is no experience of the woods. I have a theory so maybe the woods, I think we agree, is a really magical place and it might respond differently and pose different symptoms onto the people that enter the woods depending on who they are. Uh, the children enter the woods, um, I think they are representations of the good. They are the protagonists of the novel. And it seems that they need to utilize the woods to travel between the worlds to come accomplish some sort of mission to make the worlds collectively a better place. But the witch 
if she is Jadis, if she's the same white witch as in the line, the witch in the wardrobe, she is the absolute evil. And if she knew, had knowledge of the woods, she would only take advantage of it. Yeah, I think that's a good point. It's like protecting from her because if she had that power, it wouldn't like she would be using the woods for evil. It's incorruptible. Ooh. That's what I, I was also thinking. The woods almost seems very pure. Yeah. Almost Edenic. Like a garden. Ooh. Which I think plays very well into your analysis, Tina, of like the good guys have a feeling of peace in it. Although it's interesting that it's almost a dangerous level of peace. Right. But um the witch like she just doesn't uh, like she's completely weakened uh she doesn't remember it it's very interesting but i do think that is a good good assessment of it there i do want to talk a little bit about uh these differences between the worlds and um I know I, I brought it up before, but this description we have of the queen when she comes into into London, into our world, Earth. Um, and I wondered what you guys made of that. Um, now that you saw her in the wood, this is the, the line, Queen Jadis looked different. She was much paler than she had been, so pale that hardly any of her beauty was left. And she was stooped and seemed to be finding it hard to breathe. Oh, no, never mind. This is... <laughs> This is not the right uh, the right quote here. This is her in the in the wood. Now I have to find the right quote. Uh, oh, here we go. Uh, in Carn, she had been alarming enough. In London, she was terrifying. For one thing, they had not realized till now how very big she was. Hardly human was what Diggory thought when he looked at her. And he may have been right, for some say there is giantish blood in the royal family of Karn. But even her height was nothing compared with her beauty, her fierceness, and her wildness. She looked ten times more alive than most of the people one meets in London. I thought that was interesting, especially because when we first meet her in Charn, she's beautiful, she's tall, like, there are all these, all the things that are, and she's terrifying. And so it's, it's when I first conceived of her in my mind, I didn't conceive of it as being possible for her to be more of those things. And it contrasts too. Like I know I accidentally started reading the, the wrong paragraph there, but it is interesting to notice like those descriptions are very close to each other. Um, and the, the contrast, contrast between them is very stark. So do we think on earth, um, so in in Charn, we know that the witch is using magic. So on Earth, is her magic wearing off or is it stronger because she looks more alive and more beautiful and more terrifying? I think, I think I actually agree with your assessment, Tina, that like the, the different worlds have like different laws, so to speak. And so like there is no magical law in the same way that there wasn't in Karn for her to be able to use it. But there is this sense that the, the earth world is younger, right? That's one of the things they talk about is, you know, the, the sun is yellow. It's a young star. And so in this sense, it's like, she's, uh, 
stronger in a sense because the the world is younger and there's more vibrancy in it if that makes sense that does make a lot of sense but at the same time i i mean i agree but i also just looking at it from a literary perspective how she's portrayed it almost seemed humorous to me a lot of her interactions with the other characters in particular the aunt how the aunt just doesn't you know she looks at her and she doesn't think oh she's from a different world so she must be more powerful she looks at her and she says who is this woman get out of my house it's almost as if even though the witch has more so-called power or more beauty in this world and she's significantly taller and etc uh by contrasting her with the innocence of the wife c.s lewis is kind of giving a humorous aspect they're almost not making fun of the witch but um giving a sense of humor to this uh to this otherwise very powerful figure right there's definitely i think building off of that there's definitely a sense of her having more power over like the men slash boys in in the book than over the like women slash girls like we see that with polly right polly is not for her from the very beginning um and or sorry other way around the witch is not for polly from the very beginning or like not manipulating her um and i think it all like we also discussed i don't know if it was last week i think it was last week about um when diggory saw her and was like captivated by her beauty and polly said something or like something about polly not thinking she was particularly attractive like in the same way and so there is this clear like her physical beauty does have power in the book for all the men so diggory is attracted and then the same thing i think there's one point where it says um uncle andrew was like thought himself or thought her to like him or like maybe be attracted to him yeah i want to i wanted to talk about that scene next because that was I, i lewis spends a long time on that chunk but yeah there is this idea that her her beauty is compelling for the men, at least. Um, and I, I wonder if that's something that we'll continue to see through the rest of the book. But anyway, this scene with um, with Uncle Andrew, I thought it was kind of hilarious, actually. He's like, sure. like dressing up in his best suit and he's kind of like looking at himself in the mirror and like making sure he looks the best. And he's like, ah, oh, this woman she will love me and i just thought it was kind of naive of him oh for sure i mean there's this quote children have one kind of silliness as you know and grown-ups have another kind at this moment uncle andrew was beginning to be silly in a very grown-up way what do you think that means wow c.s lewis teaching some young life lessons or uh, some life lessons to some youngins what do, what do we think that what do you, what characterizes those two kinds of silliness the children's silliness and the grown-up silliness I think for children when children are silly it's genuinely because they do not know the consequences like a child might um, play with something dangerous like a knife because they don't know that the knife could hurt them but with grown-ups I think it's more like they do know that a knife is really dangerous and you can cut yourself but they still go play with it well knowing that it's going to hurt them or it's probably not true do you guys agree but the, is he not a i don't know uh, is he fully aware because it almost seems as if this witch shows up because several times throughout the story 
we're shown that the uncle do, it doesn't fully understand this magical world that he's trying to get a hold of. So I think that in that case, the silliness, I don't think he's fully aware of the consequences that could come with him. But I do agree that to a certain to a certain degree, he has to be aware that he is playing with something that he maybe shouldn't be playing with. Yeah, you get that sense in like in how he reacts when she's present, right? Like he's stuttering, he's bowing, right? That's the first thing he does is he, he literally bows to her. Right? He has this very strong intuitive sense. This woman is powerful. I am a flea next to her. Um, and he seems to like throw that entire attitude out the window when he goes and is away. So I wonder if that has something to do with it. Maybe like, not necessarily, I, I mean, to the to the extent that you're talking about this, Tina, like, it's not that he is, he, he does know the consequences, right? And there's this very clear sense that he is aware of his fleeness. But at the same time, he just kind of like throws it out the window for something else. Yeah, I think this is when talking about Uncle Andrew's faults in this chapter, they're very practical. Like they're very, very practical. Like there's the first, this first one we see about this idea of like vanity. Um, But then also of like, I mean, I think at its core, there's like, it is a conversation about lust, right? He's lusting after power. Um, And then he's also probably literally lusting after the witch. Um, And so, there's oh and and then we also learn that he was clearly lusting after money um because there's there's this conversation with his sister with aunt letty yeah um, i thought that was very telling of his character yeah saying um so uncle andrew asks aunt letty obviously for for some some money and she replies Andrew, I wonder you are not ashamed to ask me for money. There was a long, dull story of a grown-up kind behind these words. All you need to know about it is that Uncle Andrew, what with managing dear Letty's business matters for her and never doing any work and running up large bills for brandy and cigars, which Aunt Letty had paid again and again, had made her a good deal poorer than she had been 30 years ago. What life lessons! Hmm. And also, as as Tim, exactly as you're saying, it is very telling of his character. Maybe part of his silliness is that he he doesn't seem to have his priorities in um in line. Yeah, that's true. Like he was willing to send this kid into this world just because he was curious about it in the very beginning, and now he's lusting after this woman. I think. Th- think it's a general contrast between people of earth with um uncle andrew it's just the people of the world do not take magic seriously and i think that ties back to what we were previously talking about how the witch comes into the world and people look at her and dismiss her it's like oh just a drunk lady um who's dressed really weirdly and they don't take her seriously but uncle andrew uh, prioritizes magic and his fantasies about the magical world more which is just contrary to what we prioritize there's also this uh this statement about him um let's see it mentions that 
Oh, here we go. You see, the, the foolish old man was actually beginning to imagine the witch would fall in love with him. The two drinks probably had something to do with it, and so had his best clothes. Right? This idea of this silliness as like a drunkenness, right? Like he just isn't in his right mind to actually think reasonably here. And, uh, and so in that sort, the silliness is a sort of naivete. If that's how that's pronounced, I don't actually know. Naivety? Yeah. I don't know. It's, oh, it's I don't know. French, right? So I don't think it's pronounced like I'm not. Strangely. I don't know how to pronounce things in, in French. Um, yeah, it's interesting, though, that that drunkness is contrasted with the putting on of clothes. It's almost like there's this idea of, like, fault, like he's speaking falsities to himself. In the sense that, like, he isn't that man who's well-dressed. Like, that's not who he is. He can dress up like that. He can pretend to himself that he is, but he's not. Like, there's something distinguished about those clothings, or about that clothing that is more distinguished than he is. It's like he's he's trying to be someone who he's not, and he doesn't realize who he is, right? Which is very silly. It is. Yes. Which is directly after uh, what, Tim, you read. But he was, in any case, as vain as a peacock. That was why he had become a magician. So even if he didn't drink those drinks or wear these clothes, Lewis seems to imply that he's still vain. He would have thought himself to be better than he actually was. But I'm interested in why is vanity associated with becoming a magician? That's a good question. I'm not a magician. Well, it reminds me of like, I don't know if when you were children, you daydreamed about having magic powers. I did. I read Harry Potter, if that counts. But like, did you ever daydream about it? Like, did you desire it? Not too much, as Mm. I recall. What about you, Tina? Yeah, not too much. It was more of when like playing with my stuffed animals, everyone would have magic, but it wasn't. Oh, I really want it, and I think it's real. It wasn't that mm. intense. I don't think I ever thought. I mean, I I never thought it was real, but there was definitely a part of me that like the reason why I thought it was so cool in books because was because it was like imagine if I could do that. See, I read Lord of the Rings first, and so I just wanted to oh. be like Aragorn, you know, <laughs> running around sloughing, you know, chopping orcs in half with swords. Wait, but I think that counts. Like, why do you think you wanted that? It's pretty dang cool, you know? Right? Like, I think there is this element of it being cool and desiring to be, like, whatever it is that that person who has those powers, whether it be amazing fighting prowess or whether it be magical abilities, they are distinguished in some way. And I think there is a desire for that distinguishment. I think as you grow up as an adult, like, that probably won't manifest in desiring to have like superpowers but what it may manifest in is like desiring uh like um obviously as students we talk about this a lot like desiring certain grades or desiring like a status in academics or in a job market or a career like i think there's like this putting on of putting on top of who you actually are out of a desire like out of a vain desire so it kind of goes back to trying to be what you are not right about how he's putting on different clothes or getting somewhat drunk it's going beyond what we are at the moment 
And maybe, yeah. And now that I think about it even more, maybe it's even simpler than that. Tina, let me know if you, what you, if you agree, but like what do magicians have? They have power. What is like, I feel like it's inherently kind of vain to desire power of that sort. Like for your, cause he's not doing it to serve others. He's doing it to serve himself. And so maybe that's speaks to magicians, not having true power or true magical power. Maybe there's some thing that has true magical power that can wield it in a way that is serving of others instead of self-serving and ergo not vain. So it's just that this speci- uh, the magicians on earth are associated with vanity. I mean, I know that there's a line where the doesn't the queen um, accuse him of not being a true music, music, uh, magician or yes. not having the true blood of a magician. I almost said musician, but magician. Yeah, yeah. She she says something like, um, you know, uh, in our world we got rid of you cheap guys thousands of years ago, right? Like you guys are knockoffs, not the real deal. Here we go. The line: You are a little peddling magician who works by rules and books. There is no real magic in your blood and heart. Your kind was made an end of in my world a thousand years ago, but here I shall allow you to be my servant. How kind of her. And he and he's really honored. Well, it seems to me like he he is too afraid of anything else. Alright, let's dive into chapter seven now. Although we've we've kind of touched base with it on a few points. Um just because everything seems to all fit together here. Um but I I have a few questions here. So first I was very interested by this idea of keeping the witch out of the sight of uh of the mother and i wondered if this is only kind of a practical thing where oh if she sees the witch like she's just gonna have a heart attack and die or if there's something deeper about this i feel like it i don't think there's something deeper because it's the children's reaction and uh diggory's mother is is ill so it's she's just more prone to shock i don't think there's something deeper i think it's just diggory instinctively wanting to protect his mother i feel like that's also a very childlike perspective of your parents like i know when there were times when i like did something that i perceived as wrong or like did something that like i could tell had bad consequences and there were times where like i wanted i wanted to fix it without my parents ever knowing because i like wanted to i wanted them to be pleased or i didn't want to like um tell them that i'd messed up um or like disappoint them and i feel like that although i think there i think as tina's saying there definitely is something deeper about his love and care that we saw in the first chapter for his ailing mother i wonder if there might also be like a secondary level of this isn't the thing that i want her to know like I did or that I contributed to like if anything I'll tell her like not if anything but like I'd rather her know after I've solved it than before I think that ties into my next question which uh has to do with how Polly uh engages with her parents she uh tells the truth sort of I think in the in the best way that she can explain it uh, and then how, how Polly's mother reacts to that. Um, 
she uh, kind of interprets it the wrong way. But from everything that Polly has told her, it's the only thing that would really make sense for her to interpret. It seemed very much like the siblings' reactions to Lucy going into the woods and lying the witch in the wardrobe, where they're like, clearly she's lying. And in this case, it's like, clearly she went off to some random part of London and like could have gotten herself in trouble. Yeah, I think Diggory and Polly are aware of how unexplainable their situation is to the average person, which is also why in the line to witch in a wardrobe, I think Susan and Peter turn to the professor as a last resort. We will try other things, but if nothing works, then we must go to the parent. We must try to explain this because they just believe even if I explain it, they won't understand. They just think we are crazy because how could this possibly be true? So Diggory and Polly just are shying away from trying to explain that and also like the premise of it was that they were crawling in the ceilings in the attics and they ended up in uncle andrew's room which shouldn't happen right i wonder i wonder if polly's mother knew of her like hideout in the attic and then i doubt she would respond well to the fact that they're like crawling around between the houses either like Maybe Polly should have mentioned that to her mother. It also, I think we talked about this a little bit in Line the Witch in the Wardrobe when we were talking about the other Pavinsky siblings' responses to Lucy um, going into the wardrobe, into Narnia. But it really does remind me of um, the way that we perceive like supernatural events and thinking specifically about like the gospel story, right? Like I think there's a very similar response of I mean, C.S. Lewis talks about this in Mere Christianity of like it, it just being a lie, right? Um, and I think that's conveyed in this of like this idea of mm, something otherworldly being hard to describe or being hard to understand when you're thinking only in like one world's framework. But one thing that I did find interesting um, is how Diggory and Polly land in Uncle Andrew's study and they brought back the witch with them and neither are super surprised or scared. Polly is just, I'm just going to go home and, and stay there. And Diggory has to convince her, no, you have to come back. But Polly was reluctant. She she wanted to pretend like nothing happened. I wonder if that's kind of a, a holdover from made of their, their their dispute, right? I mean, she makes him apologize I wonder if she's just mad at him for like, you're the reason why everything is wrong. So you're the one who's going to have to fix everything. And I'm just going to go home and have a peaceful evening and let you deal with all the consequences for your own actions. What it reminded me of was how we talked about the witch forgetting about the woods. And it's just Polly coming back and wanting, wanting to forget about the woods and Charn. Maybe we can uh, turn to two more passages here. First, the second one is like the second half of the chapter, so it's a long one. But first, uh, the um, uh, preview we get, I guess, of what might happen later in the book, which Lewis is quite unsubtle about. Uh, 
He describes Diggory during his long watching and waiting. One small thing happened, which I shall have to mention because something important came of it later on. And then he goes on to explain this lady with the grapes comes and talks about uh, the, um, what is it, land of youth or something. And how, uh, oh, maybe there is this land of youth that we can reach through the woods between the worlds and uh, make mother well again. I just thought that was interesting. Dun, 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 fruit garden man it this part definitely it reminded me of when he first went into the woods to help polly to bring her back because it seems as if he keeps going back into this world to help people but then he always ends up making things a lot more chaotic or at least things don't happen how he expects to right (laughs) To, to put it uh lightly i suppose but yeah i think that's a a good maybe indication of his character right like uh we talked in a couple weeks ago about how he he like he knew he had a duty to follow polly in and to to save her and he knew he must do it and so i wonder if that's the same compulsion he's feeling here like compassion with a sense of duty yeah i like i like that reading Anyway, the last passage I want to discuss here is uh, this whole last scene with the horses and the buggies and the police and the crowd and the crash and the lamppost. Lamppost, what? And uh, all of these people with nice accents. So what what do we take out of these last scenes here? So much is going on. I think that is one reading. Just all the different voices, the different accents, just supplement how chaotic it is and how much there is to process. Yeah, you get that sense too, right? Like most of the previous two chapters have been kind of slow moving. You know, they kind of jump from little action to action with a lot of description between the uh, conversations and everything. And now all of a sudden, it's just like so much action, even in the reading, right? Like you feel how quick everything is happening just while you're reading. It's a very fast moving passage. I find it interesting that a lot of the players in here, like the police and the cabbie, are not necessarily authority figures, but people that you think, well, when you're with a cabbie, he's kind of leading you somewhere. When you're with a policeman, he's supposed to enforce the law. And then you have this very powerful figure that's the witch. It's like when you have powers from different worlds coming in, there's bound to be some sort of conflict between them. We could say the same thing for um, the Aunt Letty. She's like the one in charge of the household, the one who has the money, and she gets into a fight with the witch too. Yeah, especially when we look at the witch's goal, right? She's like, oh, I'm here to take over the world. And, uh, well, naturally, you're going to run into some opposition when that's your goal. I thought it was interesting. Uh, 
I think it's been mentioned a couple times now, but this picture of chaos, uh, that things are not happening as they ought to be with the witch around. And I, I wonder if, you know, that seems to be something we're, we're getting pretty strongly here, especially with the horse, right? The horse is kind of the, uh, the epitome of this chaos, right? He like, he's uncontrollable um, and he's kind of crazed and out of control. Is this something that, that is maybe pointing to larger truths in our world, uh, how we experience maybe evil in the world? Not sure. <laughs> Do you have ideas? You're always posing the question. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a... Right, like the witch is not supposed to be in our world. And we get from what we've seen so far as well as what we, we've we read in Lion, Lurch, and the Wardrobe that like this is an evil figure, right? Um, and so you, you kind of see how, you know, the world is, is falling to pieces, right? It's, it's not operating how it ought to be. And there's chaos in the streets. And, you know, all these authority figures, as were pointed out, like they can't control it. Um, and I feel like that's, like that's ex- that's how we experience world or evil in our world, right? It's like there is chaos around us, and in our own strength, right, we can't overcome that evil. Um, but there is a power that does overcome the evil, and I think we will see it later on in this book. I see what you're getting at. Dun dun. And in this moment, we just have Diggory, who sort of knows what's going on, trying to salvage the situation. He's trying to get to the witch to bring the witch back to the woods. Last thing. I promise this is the last thing. What did people think about uh, the witch calling the cabbie man a dog? Dog, came her cold, clear voice, ringing loud above all the other noises. Dog, unhand our royal charger. We are the Empress Jadis. I was more interested in the latter part of that sentence. We? Yeah. Who's we? That was interesting. We. Royal we. It seemed very much like a royal we. Mm. Wait, a royal we? Yeah, have you ever heard of the royal we? No. Um, It's like a use... Uh, is it... A gram- I don't think it's grammatical. It's just a, a like a... Um, when you use when a singular person uses we um often like a a royal like someone of royalty so like a king um because they are making it is their decision but they're making the decision for an entire nation so it's like we are happy we are sad right because they are the basis of happiness or sadness it doesn't matter what anyone else is i don't i'll have to google it but it's it's a like what how to de- like how to define it properly but gabrielle do you you seem to almost have an idea of how to define it i was going to talk about the dog part because yes thank you that's what i, I asked about <laughs> <laughs> because um we see animals come up a lot in this story and every time they do they seem to i mean with the i believe they were guinea pigs right that the uncle was kind of doing experiments on, they're tools, right, that are used by people that are trying to gain knowledge or power or whatever have you. So her calling a human being an animal dog, it's 
Like she, it's something that she can use. It's not a a being. Yeah, I like that reading. Yeah. I uh, want to respond, but first to conform. Is the royal charger the horse? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Which so, is kind of a, yeah. I mean, it, it kind of ties into what we were talking about with Uncle Andrew, like just this unrealistic expectations. Like this horse is out of control. It's just a cabbie horse. It's not a royal charger. But it just contrasts with how the witch dehumanizes the cabbie and calls the cabbie a dog, but immediately elevates, exalts, elevates this horse. Mm. And it's like royal charger. So it's probably in her world, horses are more valuable. I have no idea. Well, uh, yeah, I don't know. Maybe not necessarily that the horse is valuable in itself, right? But that it's, I mean, it's fulfilling its role as like this royal steed. And so in, in that regard, right, it's like, it's where it's supposed to be. And the cabbie man is like trying to break out of the mold that the witch wants him to be in, right? He's trying to control what he shouldn't have power over in her mind. And so he is not in a position where he could be like a royal slave. Instead, he's a dog, right? Hmm. Not that I, I, because I don't think necessarily saying a royal charger is like a compliment. It's just the way that the witch thinks things should be. To to kind of go back to your question before this and how you were talking about chaos, maybe part of what makes chaos is when people have different understandings of how things are supposed to be ordered because she believes herself to be this empress and she needs the royal steed and she'll take over everything and the cabbie and other people are like this is out of uh, this is unbelievable you know who do you think you are it's maybe part of the chaos on earth comes from different understandings of what order is or i think in in this case maybe it's uh a miss or a let's see an understanding of self-imposed order that is contrary to the natural order i think that is a nice summary of just source of conflict in general just opposing views or opposing views of what the order of things and we saw that between polly and diggory too when they were in the woods diggory says we should of course explore first but polly believes we should first make sure our backs are covered and that we can go home first. So it's because of their opposing ideals of order, they had conflict and tension between them. Yeah, but I think we always know which one is kind of the right one, right? Like it's very clear, oh yes, you should make sure you can get back home before you go explore somewhere else, right? So it's, I don't know, like there is definitely the source being a kind of the misunderstanding or the different interpretations but i think it's usually quite clear like oh one of these is definitely the correct at least in the in the novel anything else to to say before we wrap things up nothing all right gabrielle do you know how to contact us i believe that you can find us on facebook and are we on other forms of social media? <laughs> Facebook and Instagram at the Good Fight Pod 
And our email is over to you, Tina. Our email is witnessthegoodfight at gmail.com. Woo! Please send us an email. We are deprived of attention. Yes, this is true. The Facebook page is very nice, very well ordered, and there's no chaos in, on the Facebook page. Gabrielle would know because she apparently checks our Facebook page. Aww. As everyone should. Indeed. Well, let's leave it there for this week. And uh, we'll come back next week with, uh, I think, the next three chapters. So uh, stay tuned. And in the meantime, farewell. Thank you.